You're listening to the Melting Podcast. A little of everything from everyone, everywhere. With your host, AF Grappen. Hey there, Word Chefs. Welcome to episode 10 of the Melting Podcast. 10 episodes already. We're 10. Episodes old? Yes. We're 10. Yay. Yes, we are. This is our 10th episode, so we've made it this far. That's, uh, I don't know why it's surprising me that we got this far. So anyway, as always, I am AF. I am Erin. She's licking the box again. Uh, Erin, <laughs> stop licking the box. Okay, stop it. We have yet another main ingredient episode for you. This is the biggest one that we have done yet. This is a full-on, full cast. We had a whole bunch of voice actors helping us with this one. This was a big project, and I'm pretty proud of it. And there may or may not be a couple little Easter eggs for you to listen for in there. <laughs> I had a lot of fun editing this story. I had a lot of fun recording for this story. We're not going to delay any longer because this is a long story. So we're just going to get right to it. I'd like to, in advance, thank our guest voice actors, Nobilis Reed, Jeff Brackett, who is also the author, Mike Brudenell, Evie Robinson, Jelaine Hughes, from the Flash Pulp podcast, Opopinox. Plus us, as always. <laughs> you know, three musketeers. The three gusketeers. Ba-dum-tsh. Here's the story. The Burning Land by Jeff Brackett. Eric stood at the bow of the serpent, staring across the daunting vastness of the Orange Sea. Taking a deep breath, he turned and faced his first mate. Here be where we find if the men be with me or again. Charl nodded his agreement, deferential and silent, as was proper before his superior. But Eric saw something in Charles' stance. He tisked. <sighs> Not you, my friend. Don't tell me about the vision, too. Charles shrugged, an indication of acceptance and obedience, though not denial. Eric's mouth tightened in disappointment. It be Charles' duty to bring me the feelings of the crew. I can fault him not for this. Very well. Gather the crew in half a fist. I go speak to the seer. Charles' brow raised in surprise, but he went to pass the word. Released to where he held prominence, ship's law no longer required he remain silent. Crew, gather in a half-fist. Main deck, mark the time, you bandies. Eric watched as the crew nodded silently, and several looked up to mark the position of the sun in the green sky. They were a good crew, and he couldn't blame them for their fear, for today... They passed the halfway point of their journey into the unknown. Past this point, there would be insufficient supplies to return home. From here on, they were committed to the journey's success, or forfeiture of their lives. It was not an easy thing to dwell upon. Turning away from the deck's activities, Eric approached the seer's quarters. He tapped lightly at the door and waited until he heard a voice within. A tapping on his hatch drew Rayland out of his funk. Come. The lever clanked as the hatch opened to reveal the svelte form of his executive officer, Layla Farmer. Permission to enter? He waved at his guest chair. Please do. Anything to take my mind off these damned reports. He lifted a folder. Engineering reports on the breach in Reactor 2's containment field. It's been leaking low-level radiation into the air scrubbers for the last three months. Captain? They can slow it, but there's damage to the machine shop that's keeping them from making the proper parts for repair. He lifted another folder. 
Meanwhile, medical reports another dozen cases of radiation exposure. Captain. Same as before. Cellular discrepancies with probable long-term side effects. But no conjecture on what those side effects may be, of course. He waved at the other folders. <sighs> another pregnancy miscarried, three suicides. Captain. The list goes on. He ran his hands through his thinning hair. The Armstrong is nearly 400 years old. Captain. And she's beginning to show her age. Captain. Sorry, Layla. What can I do for you? She handed him an envelope. Rayland felt his heart skip a beat. A sealed envelope was never good news. What's this? My letter of resignation, sir. Her voice cracked as she said it. What? Layla, you can't resign at a time like this. I'm pregnant, sir. Rayland stopped in his tracks. Pregnant? Yes, sir. You're pregnant? Yes, and I don't think it's going to look very proper for the ship's XO to be waddling around carrying the captain's baby. He laughed and scrambled around the deck. Pulling her to him, he kissed her in a most uncaptainly manner. She smiled, obviously relieved. You aren't angry? Angry? This is a colony ship! Having babies is what we do! But not the captain in the XO. Layla, in 400 years on this ship, you are the first female XO. It would have been a bit difficult before this generation. She smiled. I was worried about how you would take it. How far along are you? About two months. Good. Then your resignation is not accepted. Ray, in another couple of months, I'm going to start showing. He shuffled through the folders on his desk until he found what he was looking for. First good report I've had in a year. He held it up triumphantly. In another month, we might just be planet-side. Her eyes widened. Seriously? Rayland nodded. Astrophysics found an orange dwarf about a month down the spiral arm. Spectral analysis indicates a planet within the habitable zone. She perked up. Really? Still a month out, but yes. Probes launch this morning, and we'll receive reports back in a few weeks. Layla hugged him close, but one thing he'd said now haunted her. Another miscarriage. They had to get off this ship. Soon. Seer Yusin Groger heard the tapping at his door and nodded. Come before me, Cape and Eric. Eric entered and waited silently for the seer to speak again, as was proper. Come, come. I bade you come before me, not stand at the door like a common lap growl. Sit with me. Eric did as the seer commanded and knelt on the floor before the older man. Please, Capen, let us dispense with propriety when it be just the two of us. I long for conversation, don't you? Tentatively, Eric looked up to find the seer smiling at him amiably. I seer. Indeed I do. The old man's smile grew. Good. Then come, sit beside me. While it be just us, we shall treat each to the other as equal. Propriety be drowned. Eric grinned and sat beside the seer. My thanks, seer. Yusin looked into Eric's eyes. The men be restless, eh? They won't turn back. Eric dropped his eyes in the face of the seer's power. You have seen this? He chuckled. <laughs> Nay, young Capon, tis but common sense. We reach the point of no return in our journey, and tis only natural that men fear the ultimate gamble. So what can I tell them? Be our path still true? Yusin's smile faded, and he sighed. He closed his eyes and sought the place that was both within and without, wherein lay the memories of things that had not yet occurred. Searching the various pathways, Yusin spoke again. Three weeks on... And two days past the last of the food shall the serpent sail. On the third day of famine shall the capon set foot to shore. This be your seeing? Yusin shrugged. 
Tis one of many paths that lay before us. Eric bowed deeply. My thanks, seer. Yusin smiled. Go see to your crew, but come back to me when you need not just a seeing. What I said was truth. I crave conversation. Eric smiled tentatively. I shall, seer. Then he turned and left. Yusin waited a few minutes, then turned to the ornately carved tum-tum chest on the table beside him. Pressing the hidden catches, the seer opened the top and reached within. Reverently, he lifted the cloth from the chest. Made of rare tulji fiber, nearly indestructible, with text written in the indelible stains of jub-jub blood, it was one of one hundred copies of the original. Yusin was one of one hundred keepers of his order, one of only one hundred who had been taught the ancient language of the order. Were he to fall, they would promote another to his station. Another copy of the sacred text would be meticulously created, and the order would continue as it had for centuries. But until that happened, Yusin would continue to study the holy words. The Armstrong's Council met to hear reports from the probes. A holographic orange sphere hung before the bustling room. Rayland raised his hands to get their attention. Two weeks ago, astrophysics detected a Sol analog KV system with a Goldilocks planet about as close to home as we could hope for. He waved at the hollow. I thought home was green. Someone muttered. Rayland nodded. Yes, records show that Earth was green. Sol was a yellow dwarf, and plant life there was chlorophyll-based, which didn't allow the efficient absorption of green light. The end result was that plant life reflected green. He waved his hand at the display. Here, the star is an orange dwarf, approximately three-fourths the size of Sol, and photosynthesis is beta-carotene-based. So plants reflect red and yellow light. Rayland toggled a switch. There was a slight feeling of vertigo as the view zoomed in, making it appear that they were plunging toward the planetary surface. When the movement stopped, a scarlet jungle of alien plants appeared before them. Crimson foliage covered the top of a cliff, and at its base, orange waves pounded against black stone. The sky above was pale green. There were gasps of wonder as the crowd took it all in. Rayland grinned. The place is teeming with life. Probes have already sampled air and waterborne particulates. Xenobiology and medical agree that there is nothing that our immune systems can't handle. It's compatible! What more can we hope for? The water's orange! Green sky? Raylan laughed. Yes! The oceans are rich with beta-carotene-based algae. And orange sunlight filtering through an oxygen-rich atmosphere gives us the greenish sky. There was excitement in the room now, as the rest of the crowd began to accept that their generation's long journey might soon be over. Temperature is a little warmer, and gravity is 0.87 Earth norm. A little light but medical assures me we can adapt to it without any long-term problems. There were more smiles around the table, and the chatter was becoming increasingly light-hearted. So what's the catch? Someone called. Metal. He admitted. All indications are that the planet is almost 75% lower in metal content than Earth. What? Chief Engineer Andrews clenched his fists. That's unacceptable. We can't survive without metals. Many of the others looked confused, but Raylan had expected this reaction from the chief. He was a bit surprised that some of the others hadn't joined in yet. We won't be without. Metal will just be rarer than on Earth. And we can survive on less, though I admit our technology will suffer. We'll still have the Armstrong. Raylan turned to the rest of the council. The Armstrong is designed to be broken down and used as the foundation for our colony. She'll provide enough resources that we won't have to worry about what the planet can provide for decades. He singled Andrews out. 
Let me point out that we are currently trapped in a vessel with a faulty reactor leaking radiation into the air scrubbers. The Armstrong has been a good ship to us, and I don't fault the work you and your department have done. But she's been 400 years in space, and there's a limit to what we can ask of her and of you. He had everyone's attention again and used their silence to drive his point home. The Armstrong is dying, and if we don't want to die with her, we have to take this chance. Their food was two days gone now, two days of fasting and fear. He was proud of his crew, for Eric knew that no matter how devout one's faith in times of feast, the gnawing of famine lent weight to the darker demons of the soul. His men had stood firm, and the seer said there was less than one more day before they reached landfall. He gazed at the night sky above. Help us stay strong, mother. His prayer was short but heartfelt. There was a slight noise behind him as Charles politely scuffed his boot on the deck to announce his presence. As Eric turned, though, a drumbeat from the mast station begged attention. Charles raised an eyebrow to his capon. Eric nodded. Take the report. The first mate stepped away from his superior and shouted up the main mast. Report! Land! Land off the port bow! Heads turned as the night crew heard the report. Land! Low voices spoke to one another, and Eric smiled at the small impropriety. Let them celebrate. It was an historic occasion. How far? Charles yelled. About forty furlongs, sir. Charles turned to Eric for orders. First mother answers. Eric smiled. Drop sea anchor and maintain position till dawn. Double the watch and wear for reefs. We make landfall on the morrow. It was an historic occasion. After four centuries in space, the Armstrong was going to land. One landing, never again to rise, her bones to be the foundation for her children's home. In theory, the colony would be able to survive for decades on those bones. Better yet, they had found a landing site that showed indications of having easily accessible iron nearby. Raylan scanned his panels and nodded. Last orbit, folks. Reports? Telemetry reports all systems green. Engineering is green. One by one, Medical the lights green. on his master console lit green until all green. departments had Link made their final reports. Raylan took a deep breath. All right, people, let's set her down. For nearly two minutes, nothing happened. Then the Armstrong hummed as she kissed the atmosphere. A minute later, the hum evolved into a distant rattle. Rayland arched an eyebrow at Chief Andrews. Is this normal? How the hell should I know? The closest we've ever been to landing is in the training sims. The ship lurched, and the rattling turned to a roar. Well, you're the engineer. You studied the way this works, didn't you? The ship reeled again as Andrews answered. All I can tell you is the Armstrong was designed for an atmospheric landing. A particularly rough patch shook them even more, and Rayland had to shout now to be heard over the roar. Yeah, but I can't help recalling that she was also designed to come apart! Andrews laughed maniacally as the ship bounced wildly into the upper atmosphere. Look at it this way, Captain. If we come apart on the way down, we'll probably never know it. Rayland shook his head. That's not exactly reassuring, Chief. Before Andrews could reply, one of the green lights on Raylan's console turned red. Chief? Coolant bay on Reactor 2 has ruptured. His fingers flew across his control panel. I'm shutting it down. Another light went red. Layla yelled above the mayhem. Life support reports a massive influx of radiation into the air scrubbers. Raylan looked to Andrews. Chief, can you block number two? No, sir. All I can do is cool it down and flood it with liquid nitrogen. Do it! It's not something you do quickly, not unless you want to damage containment. How long? We'll be on the ground before I'm done. 
You can't speed it up? Not unless you want us on the ground much faster, and in much smaller pieces. Rayland turned to Layla. Shut down the air scrubbers! She gaped at him as if he'd lost his mind. Shut them down! We'll be on the ground before the CO2 levels get high enough to bother us. I don't want to spread higher radiation levels through the ship. Three more indicators turned yellow. Chief? Don't worry about that. It's the other reactors adjusting to the additional load. Keep them together, Chief. Andrews didn't bother replying, yelling commands through the comm instead. Layla, how long till touchdown? Telemetry shows four minutes. He watched as the indicator for Reactor 2 went from red to yellow. Slowly, the shaking subsided, and the ship leveled out. Reactors 1, 3, and 4 slid back into the green. Andrews called to him. Captain, it's under control for now, but I can't stop what's coming. Raylan's heart sank. What do you mean? We still can't get Reactor 2 locked down. The containment field has become unstable. How unstable? It'll go critical in a matter of hours. I can reroute some of the power from the other reactors to strengthen the field on number two, but that just buys us a few more hours. You mean we're going to lose the ship? With a deafening boom, the Armstrong heaved one last time, and Layla reported what he already knew. Touchdown, Captain. Andrews raised his face from his console and turned to Rayland. Captain, if we don't start evacuation immediately, we won't make it out of blast range. When that reactor goes, anything within 20 kilometers is going to receive an immediately fatal dose. Rayland didn't hesitate. Chief, buy us as much time as you can. He turned to Layla. Start emergency evac. Get the flitters offloaded and start shuttling people and supplies to a safe distance. I'll leave it to you to find an appropriate site. The sun shone brightly as the serpent dropped anchor in the shallow lagoon. Eric stood beside the seer on the capon's deck, and the two of them looked across the water to the pristine ebony sands of the beach and the crimson jungle beyond. "'Tis a glorious day, Capon." Seer Yusin, expecting a reply from the young man beside him, missed the simple nod of his companion. After a few seconds of silence, he turned to the Capon to ask a question. As he did, though, he spotted some of the crew nearby and realized why the man was silent. He sighed. "'Propriety again. Join me in my cabin.' Eric smiled and nodded. Taking one final look at the new land before them, Yusin turned and led them to his cabin. As soon as the door closed behind them, Eric relaxed. Seer, it be as wondrous as you foretold. The young man paced the cabin restlessly. The jungle be so thick, we'll be hard-pressed to make headway inland. Did you see the size of the growth? It looks to be ancient. Yusin nodded. Aye, tis near a millennia since man set foot on this land. His words stopped Eric in his tracks. His mouth opened, then closed as he considered. Twice more he did this before he actually put voice to his confusion. If it please the seer, did you say men have been here afore? Yusin nodded. Captain Eric, I've not known you long, but I feel you're a devout man, be I right? Aye. Then you know the tale of how man came to be? As does every child. Did you know the order itself be divided on interpretation of the tale? Puzzlement shone in Eric's eyes. Nay, seer, how so? Most of the order think the tale be allegorical, a myth about the ever-war twixt good and evil. But there be some of us that think it be a more literal accounting. The seer gestured out toward the door and indicated the new land outside. If we be right, this be the burning land. Eric cocked his head to the side in confusion. The burning land? The fire's a hell from whence the first escaped. There be no fires here. Yusin shrugged. 
but were it always so, my visions have brought us here, and now they tell me we go four days more eastward. Four days, and we'll find the truth. Layla pushed the crew until they ran the fuel cells out on two of the flitters, overloading them with more than double their designed capacity. Flitters that were meant for 50 people she crammed with a hundred or more, as well as whatever supplies they could get out of the ship in a hurry. Even with that, it wasn't enough. It turned out that the chief's safety margin was off by half an hour. He and Rayland were on the last flitter when it was caught in the blast. The two senior officers, as well as 55 other crewmen, died instantly, leaving first mate Layla Farmer with no lover, no father for her unborn child, and nearly 4,000 souls looking to her for answers. The jungles of this new land were full of fearful things. Early on the first day of their trek, one of Eric's crew brushed against a flowering plant and became as a drunkard. Eric had to send him with an escort back to the ship. Later that same day, another was stung by a bright blue creature no larger than one's little finger. He died spitting blood and shrieking in agony. But there were also wondrous things that no man had ever before seen. They saw creatures half the size of a man with flaps of skin between their hands and feet that allowed them to catch the air and drift great distances between trees. There were great ponderous beasts that shook the ground when they moved, smaller creatures with red-patterned skin that blended into their surroundings, and all manner of colorful animals in bright blues and greens. The seer warned them that the bright ones were likely painted by First Mother as a warning, and reminded them that the tiny creature that had killed their crewmate was similarly colored. The men gave them wide berth after his warning. On the second day, the jungle began to thin out and progress became easier. Now I understand why you hated reports, Rayland. They're as tedious as they are necessary. Layla pushed back a tear as she thought of him. There would be time for tears later. Lifting the flap of her tent, she beckoned the runner outside. Please ask Chief Bradford to see me at his earliest convenience. Yes, ma'am. The ensign trotted off. It had been a week since the loss of the Armstrong and that last flitter. A week of shock and mourning. But if they were going to survive, they needed to get out of the vicinity. He ducked as he entered, and Layla was surprised to notice how tall he was. Pull up a... stump. He grinned as he sat on the protrusion before her. What can I do for you, Commander? What's the progress on getting the flitters operational? I'm afraid we've gotten as far as we're going to. Two are usable for shelter and minor functions, but they'll never fly again. The other two are almost fully functional. She nodded. Good. She took a deep breath. Chief, if we baby them, how far will they take us? Chief Bradford shrugged. The fuel cells have solar recharge units. Given adequate sunlight and water, they could theoretically last forever. Assuming we don't overwork them like we did the others. Excellent. She unrolled one of the laminated maps they had printed out while searching for a landing site. They were wonderfully detailed, and under current circumstances, quite priceless. Layla pointed. Here's where we are. She unrolled more of the map and pointed across the ocean. And here's where we need to be. That far? To assure that we stay far enough out of the fallout patterns, we need to maximize our distance. The question is, can the flitters get us there? Bradford nodded. Definitely. If we take light loads, and, as you said, baby the flitters... He looked over the map and began muttering to himself. Trip looks to be maybe eight or nine hours. Call it ten for safety. That's roughly 4,000 people with two flitters. That's 50 per trip, two trips per day. He looked up and nodded. I'd estimate we should be able to do it in just over a month. Good. She pulled out a folder on which she had written some notes. 
she realized as she handed it to Bradford that it was one of Raylan's report folders. Damn it, Ray, why does everything have to remind me of you? Here's a list of personnel and positions I think should be in the first wave. Their skill sets should expedite creation of the new colony when we get them in place. She discussed her plans with him until sunset. The first flitters left the following midday. On the second morning in the jungle, one of the crew did not awaken. There was no mark on him, but he was indisputably dead. The next night, another was carried away screaming in the jaws of a giant beast that tore through their camp and disappeared before the guards could react. After that, the stench of fear hung palpable in the air. On the fourth day, they came to a thinning of trees, and Seer Yusin stopped the procession. He pulled Eric aside, nodding to a tangle of undergrowth just ahead of them. Here be where my visions bring us. The men must clear the vines there. Make sure to expose all to the light of the sun. But take care. There be treasure beneath. It took only a few minutes to confirm the seer's words. Spears, clubs, and gloved hands combined to clear the first section. But as soon as the men saw what lay beneath, all thought of propriety was forgotten. Capen! There be metal here! Eric rushed forward. Intertwined vines and briars grew over a rounded wall taller than a man. A wall that shone only as metal could. "'Tis true, seer," he grinned. "'Treasure, indeed." Yusin shook his head. "'This be valuable, but the true treasure lies within.' Eric's eyebrows raised. "'Within?' "'Aye, this be but a structure, a receptacle of the Holy Word.' An hour later, an elongated, cylindrical room of metal and glass sat before them, the windows warped but unbroken. On back lay the obvious shape of a doorway, but no latch with which to open it. Seer Yusin stepped forward to examine the doorway. Tentatively, he lifted the sleeve of his robe and began to scrub the metal beside the door. After a moment, he stepped back. Where he had cleaned the metal was the unmistakable impression of a hand, as if some god possessed of great strength had shoved into the metal hard enough to leave his imprint. Yusin turned to the men gathered behind him. I know not for sure what shall happen. Show yet a bit more patience and step back for a bit. Eric and the others stepped back obediently. Then Yusin took a deep breath and laid his hand within the god's imprint. The door opened with a hiss, and the interior of the chamber flared to life with light. Yusin stumbled back quickly, careful not to breathe in the air until he was back with the muttering crew. What manner of place be this? Eric whispered to Yusin. I believe tis a vessel the first used to flee the burning land. He stepped forward and sniffed the doorway cautiously. Then he beckoned, and they stepped within. As they passed the threshold, a ghost appeared before them. She was dressed strangely, and beginning to show with child. Yusin dropped to his knees. First mother! The others hastened to follow his lead. Then she spoke in a language that none but he understood. Welcome. I'm first mate. Make that captain, Layla Golden of the colony ship Armstrong. I've reset the flitter door to allow access to any human handprint, but only after remote radiation levels are safe. That means if you're seeing this, you are most likely one of our descendants several hundred years removed. I have no way of knowing how much of this you will understand, but it's the best I can do. We came to colonize this world, but there was an accident and one of our reactors went critical. Most of us escaped the explosion, but we lost many of our crew. We've taken temporary shelter in this clearing, repairing what equipment we can, and gathering what supplies survived. But we can't stay. 
Fallout from the Armstrong's explosion is too great a danger for us to settle this close. I have left you a copy of all our records within the computer of this flitter. To access it, simply preface any queries with the word computer and ask. The ship's system will respond as long as it has sunlight. Additionally, there are topographical maps in this compartment that show nearby iron ore deposits. Initial surveys of the planet showed it to be very low in metals, so we chose our landing place based on the largest and most easily accessed deposits of iron ore we could find. You will find all the information you need to access those deposits on these documents. She pointed to a button on the console. Simply press that button and the compartment will open. Layla looked at the recorder, sadness clearly showing in her eyes. I wish we could do more, but at this point I just hope we survive. If anyone ever accesses this recording, I suppose we did. God help us all. Stunned, Yusin stepped forward and pressed the button First Mother had indicated. A hidden drawer slid open, and he reached within to withdraw a wealth of knowledge that would change his people forever. Clutching the documents reverently, he turned and began to explain to the men gathered around him. Weary with the last month's duties, as well as the strain of burgeoning motherhood, Layla shut off the recorder. Stepping outside, she pressed her hand into the palm lock and sealed the flitter for the last time. She'd spent weeks seeding it with as much information as she could. Without the salvage they had planned on receiving from the Armstrong, the colonists were in for a rough existence. They would be forced to adapt more quickly to the new world, rather than adapting it to suit them. Layla rubbed her growing belly and smiled. We almost didn't make it, little one, but humanity has a habit of perseverance. We'll be all right, won't we? Bradford greeted her as she exited the crippled flitter. He'd insisted on personally piloting the last flight. Ready, Commander? Taking one last look, Layla nodded. They'd done all they could here. Yes, Chief. Let's go home. Jeff Brackett is a recent refugee from Texas, and by the time of this podcast will hopefully be settled into a new home in Oklahoma. He wonders if this means he can now call himself an Oklahoma. See what he did there? No, he can't. And as you can see, he has a somewhat juvenile sense of humor. The Burning Land is his entry in the Dead Robot Society anthology, Explorers Beyond the Horizon. While thinking about the requirements of the anthology, he had a dream about a world in which the sky was green. That dream led him down a days-long rabbit hole of research to determine the circumstances that might produce such a sky. It turned into a project he found so fascinating that he hopes to one day expand the world of the Burning Land into a full-length novel. You can find more about the author, his books, and his writing process at www.jlbracket.com. You can also find him on Facebook. And I can tell you, he is an awesome guy to talk to. And he has a great voice. I love a, when he's done voices for us. He has an amazing voice. Uh, you may remember him as Zeus uh, from our Valentine's Day episode. And he was Seer Yusin in his own story. So, yeah, cameo by the author himself. No, if he, if he did expand that into a full novel, I would definitely read that. I really liked that story. Oh, I would read that so hard. I've already read two of Jeff's novels. They are great. He is just an all-around awesome guy. And I am looking forward to seeing more from him. All right, but enough about Jeff. Here's something about someone else. A promo. Listen, I know how you feel. I've been there. You feel like you had a dream to write. Once. 
There were stories in your head that were unparalleled, and so much better than the stuff you bought in bookstores. You would be an author. You would show them all. But maybe along the way, you got discouraged. Maybe you bowed to the demands of life, family, career. Maybe you just thought you wouldn't be good enough, or that it was too late. But I'm here to tell you, you should be writing. At five years old, I should be writing as one of the first writing podcasts. Author Mer Lafferty speaks to wannabe writers on the issues of keeping going from the beginning early stages of writing to keeping professional in the later stages of building a career. I speak weekly to professional authors about their work, their process, and advice that they have for you. There really is nothing stopping you. No, not that. Not that either. Nope. Whatever you're thinking of, it can't stop you. Trust me. Listen to I Should Be Writing at IShouldBeWriting.com and learn more. Twice weekly and free, IShouldBeWriting.com. Because you should be writing. But I should be writing. I should be working on my craft. I should be writing. You should be writing. Okay, bye. Oh. Oh, you mean I have to... I have to finish this? Oh. Oh, oh, okay then. Okay then. It's just you and me. (laughs) Well, now that AF is off doing what writers do, I'm going to do what mothers do. And nag. Nag, nag, nag. Send us more stuff. We want more from you. And you know what? We have prompts for that. How helpful, right? Prompt number four is a company has just received an order of fledges. They did not order these. And now introducing prompt number five. Something in the bathroom is your character's spiritual leader or confidant. Now that, that I'm eager to read. Write me something. This is a personal request, straight from me to you. No, not you. Not you, Dave. And not you, Chris. Yeah, that's right, you. You. Yeah. You write me something. And then, maybe I'll read it for you. And I will use it to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can find our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. Find us on Twitter at MeltingPodcast or email us at themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it, as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are from the Free Sound Project, and the music is by Drew Rich Creek.